Why don't we go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we're going to wrap up uh, our time in uh, the book of Acts that we've been in the last couple months. And um, we're going to wrap it up with this focus, that three weeks today, from today, on June 26th, Sunday night, we as a church community will be gathering together down at the Deschutes River to celebrate a baptism. And um, this has become an annual uh, tradition for Antioch, where we get together, the whole church, and we eat really well, and we have fun, and uh, we celebrate, but we invite uh, all those from within our community that haven't yet followed Christ in baptism to do so that day, and we do it with them. And so today, I want to help us begin to prepare to celebrate Baptism Sunday, by turning our attention to the topic of baptism in the book of Acts. And um, I want to start with the simple uh, observation over the course of the book of Acts that every time that the good news of Jesus is announced, whether it's preached publicly to crowds of thousands or whether it's communicated intimately within a household, Whenever the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done to save us is announced, and the question comes in response, well, what should we do then? If that's, like, if the story of Jesus is true, that God really has come to earth and made his dwelling among us, and that in Christ the kingdom of God has taken root, the seeds of God's kingdom have been planted in the soil of earth, and that Jesus has launched this cosmic revolution to make all things new by living the life we are supposed to live and dying the death we are supposed to die and rising victoriously from the dead and giving us his spirit. If that gospel, if that good news is actually true, the people in Acts would say, so what do we do about that? How should we respond? And over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we see that the response is to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so let's look at the very first time that the gospels preached. We saw in Pentecost Sunday uh, several weeks ago this beautiful story of the Spirit um, coming and empowering the first church, essentially, and that when the, first, when the gospel was first preached in our world, it was preached in every single language at once so that no culture or no nationality or no ethnic group can claim precedence over any other within Christianity, but Jesus is truly Lord of all, and this gospel is good news for all. And what happens then is then Peter in the book of Acts gets up and he preaches. He tells the good news, the story of Christ, and he comes to this point in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2 where he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized 
and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, and so this is the first time that the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. Thousands of people hear and believe and want to know what should we do with this good news. Like it demands a response, and, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. Okay, and so in the book of Acts, you'll find that this is normative, meaning this isn't just an isolated event that we're trying to build some sort of doctrine off of, but this, throughout the narrative, happens over and over again. Flip over several chapters to the right, a couple case studies real quick. As the gospel begins to spread, starting in Jerusalem and then eventually working its way to the ends of the earth, the ends of the known world, it goes to Samaria. And you'll remember, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Well, here's where that happens in Acts chapter 8. It goes to Samaria. And um, one of the apostles, a guy by the name of Philip, preaches, and in verse 8, or uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon, this sorcerer, magician who's there, himself believed and he was baptized and he followed, followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Okay, so we see this pattern again, that the gospel's preached, people respond through belief or faith, trusting in Christ, and then the physical act of baptism. Okay, same chapter, the next story, Philip runs into this Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian's reading what we call the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, and he's confused. And in verse 34, the eunuch asks Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip starts in Isaiah and preaches the gospel with this Ethiopian guy. Verse 36, as they travel along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. Okay, so immediately on the spot, in the moment of him hearing and believing the good news about Jesus, he's like, We're, we can't even finish this trip. We can't even make it to the end of this road. We need to stop right now, and I need to be baptized. One last study, case study in the next chapter, verse nine, or chapter nine, sorry. <clears throat> this is Saul. Before, he is Paul. He is a persecutor of Christians. He's a great enemy of Christ and his church. And Jesus confronts Saul. He appears to him on the road to Damascus. And he confronts him and appears in such a powerful way that Saul literally goes blind and is unable to eat or drink anything for three days. Okay, and then as the story unfolds in Acts chapter 9, God sends this guy named Ananias to, to Saul to help him process what's going on as he's been confronted by the person of Jesus. And in verse 18 of Acts chapter 9, it says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So again, Saul hasn't eaten anything or, or had anything to drink for three days. But when he finally sees Jesus, when he gets the good news, 
he goes and gets baptized before he even gets something to eat. Okay? So I hope you, we begin to see this pattern that not only is it normative for a response to the gospel to include baptism, but there's an urgency to it as well. There's this sense of like, if this story is true, then I'm literally going to stop in my tracks. I'm not even going to make it to where I'm going. I'm not even going to get something to eat. But I need to be baptized right now if this story is true. And there's many more stories in Acts that tell us the same thing. This continues throughout the early parts of church history where when the gospel goes forth, people hear it, they respond in faith and repentance, and immediately, on the spot, are baptized, okay? And so here's the first thing I, I wanna say as clearly as I can, that in the New Testament and in the life of the early church, there is no category for an unbaptized Christian. It simply wasn't a thing that upon conver confer conversion, upon professing faith, baptism is just what you did. And so if you would have introduced yourself in the days of the early church as a Christian who hadn't been baptized, people would have looked at you like you're crazy. It's, it would have been the same as saying like, yeah, I'm a dad, I just don't have any kids, and I never have. You're like, wait, you can't, how are you a dad then? Don't hang out with my kids, right? <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't make sense. And so the apostles, the way they talk about and the way they practice baptism, if we're honest, is a way that's way more urgent and robust than most of us are actually comfortable with. For many of us, and we all come from different backgrounds and faiths and traditions, and maybe you're Jewish or Muslim or British, I don't know where you're coming from, but <laughs> for most of us, even in, in Christian traditions, if we take seriously how things tend to play out in the book of Acts, we go, man, they seem to take this thing called baptism way more seriously than we do, okay? And so for a lot of us, baptism is something that's held up as a symbol. It's something that if, uh, if we feel so inclined, it's kind of a nice thing to do. We have a sort of a sense of duty or obligation because we know that Jesus commands his disciples to be baptized and to baptize more disciples. And so we're like, yeah, I guess you know, we should probably do it when I'm ready. You know, like when God leads me to that or when I feel prompted or when I feel like my faith or my life is in line or in order enough to feel good about being baptized. And it's just not the picture that we get in the New Testament. That um, it's like this physical act goes way beyond mere symbolism. And so what I would argue is that what most Christians have understood uh, or believed to be true since the very early days of the church of Jesus is that baptism isn't simply a symbol, but
but it's actually what you might call a means of grace. That it's actually a God-ordained way where he chooses or offers to pour his life into his people in a way that's not just symbolic, but in a way that's actually real. It's one of the ways that God chooses to give himself to us. And so the idea of means of grace may be new for some of us, and it simply is the pathways or the avenues that God has ordained to grace us, to gift us with, with his life, with his blessing, with his power, and with his presence. And um, the trick is that if I were to ask what are the means of grace in the Bible or that the church has practiced, we could actually probably identify a whole bunch. And depending on your background or your faith tradition, there's some that are going to be clearly articulated. Um, but what I would argue is that the lowest common denominator that all Christians throughout history have essentially agreed upon that there's at least two, there are at least two God-ordained means of grace. And the first is his word, the scriptures, and the second are what we would call sacraments, meaning baptism and the Eucharist, or the Lord's table, the communion meal. That the word of God is a means of grace. We understand that this isn't just a book, that this isn't just an ancient text, but there's something living and active and sacred and divine about the scriptures, about every part, even the weird parts or difficult parts, that God has graced us with this book in its writing, in its preservation, but he continues to grace us through his word. And many of us have had uh, incredible experiences both great and small, where through the scripture, either through our own reading and reflection and meditation upon it, or through the teaching and preaching of God's word, that it's not just like I learned something new or had an interesting idea, but I felt like God was actually like meeting me through this word, that God was actually filling me with his life, refreshing my mind and changing my heart. So for many of us, the word of God isn't just about information, but it's about transformation, right? That God graces us, gives himself to us through the scriptures. So Christians have always celebrated that. But secondly, in addition to word, we've held up sacrament. These physical events of baptism and communion that just like the scriptures are an opportunity or a designation that God has set aside and said, I want to give myself to you through these things. I want to meet you. I want to fill you. I want to bless you and empower you through water and wine and bread. These very ordinary things. Now, most of us get that with a book. And I would simply say we extend that to the elements of baptism and communion. And so... What I'm convinced of is that when the gospel's preached in the book of Acts and throughout church history, and the response that's given is repentance and baptism, that baptism isn't simply symbolic, but it is part of how God's salvation comes into our life. Okay, now some of this is tricky and mysterious, so just don't 
Try not to misunderstand. God chooses to work deeply within us, even transformationally at that point of conversion, and it's designed to happen through repentance and through baptism. Now here's what freaks us out about that big idea, but even maybe the idea of means of grace at all. Because how would we define grace? Somebody give me a a definition that you've heard or used. What is grace? Nice, it even breaks down, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. What else? It's free, right? That's the whole idea, that grace, by its very nature, is something that's unearned, something that's undeserved, something that's given, not worked for or achieved. Okay, and so we know that grace is how God saves us and not just how he brings us into his family and into his mission, but it's every day is grace. All of life is gift. Every moment, every possession, everything that we have, it's all grace. We understand that we didn't deserve any of the life that we have in Christ, but it's been given to us, unmerited, undeserved, unearned. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, right? We know that. But then we introduce the conversation of, okay, so grace is unearned and free and unmerited, but apparently there are means of grace that God has ordained. There's specific ways that he's chosen to channel his grace into our lives. And all of a sudden we start feeling like, wait, so if baptism's a means of grace, it's something I do in order to get grace from God, then that doesn't feel like grace anymore. That feels like weird, empty, ritualistic religion again. And so for many of us as Christians who have rightly embraced the gospel of grace, we've actually shut the door on something like a sacrament or a means of grace because it feels like earning. So let's wrestle with that for a moment. If I said to you today, you know what? I'd like to give you a million dollars. You would say to me, what? Why would you want to give me a million dollars? Did I like win a contest or did I do something to deserve it? And I would say to you, no, I just want to give you a million dollars. And you would go like, really? Like how, that doesn't make sense. Like why? Would you do that for me? There's got to be something about me or some reason that you would choose to give me the money. And I would just say, no, I just love you, and I want you to have a million dollars. Sweet. So you'd say, sweet. You'd say, okay, so what do I need to do? How do I get this million bucks? And I would say, you don't have to do anything. Just come to my house tonight at 7 and I'll give you a check. And you're like, that's it? You don't need me to do anything. I'm like, no, just come to my house tonight at seven. So tonight at seven, you come to my house, you knock on the door, I hand you a million dollar check, you go on your way, you take it to the bank, done deal. What's your address? <laughs> You'll be very disappointed. <laughs> 
So let me ask you this. Did you do anything to earn that million dollars? Was it a gift that you deserved? Was it merited? Was it earned? Well, you could say, well, I did have to drive to your house. And that cost me probably buck fifty in gas. And, and uh, you know, I missed a little bit of game two of the NBA Finals, so, you know, that costs quite a bit. And I think we would all go, no, you didn't earn it. <laughs> you didn't deserve it. All you did was simply meet me in the place where I had promised to give you that free gift. Do you see the picture? Like, the economics of it just clearly doesn't equal earning (laughs) or even anything remotely similar to it. And so if that million dollars is a picture of God's grace, then a means of grace is simply here's the time and place in which I want to give you this free gift. And you can't say by simply driving there and showing up on time that you somehow are negating the fact that it's unearned, undeserved, unmerited. You're simply positioning yourself in the place where I've promised to give you that that grace. Okay? And I'm convinced that that's the picture that, that we would have of the God-ordained means of grace, of word and sacrament. And there's actually many others as well, some that are less formalized or traditionalized. But we know that there's lots of ways where God says, if you do this, I'm gonna meet you there and I'm gonna give my life to you. One of them's community, right? That instead of trying to follow Jesus in isolation, that I'm gonna learn how to share my life deeply with the family of God. And it doesn't mean it's gonna be easy or comfortable all the time, but it means I would have an anticipation that that's one of the places that God's gonna pour his life into me. It's through meaningful relationships with others. So in addition to word and sacrament, there's many other things. Even something like service, right? Like giving our lives away. We would trust that when Jesus says when we lose our lives we're going to find it, he's almost giving service or working for justice as a means of grace as well. It's not earning. It's not deserving. It's not meriting. It's simply as an act of faith and trust meeting God in the places where he's offered to give himself to us. And so that's the picture of baptism. Baptism that it's not mere symbolism, but when Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, he's saying that there is actually something sacramental. There's actually something deep and real that's happening in that moment. Which is why Paul's like, I haven't eaten for three days, but I need to get baptized. And the eunuch's like, hey, I'm supposed to be somewhere, but I need to stop and get baptized right now. Like God has said, this is one of the places where I'm gonna give myself to you. And so urgency, radical trust, incredible faith would make sense in that moment. Okay? Now where this whole thing of a million dollar check and all that breaks down is that for us, and this is important to understand, that grace isn't a what. Grace is a who. 
Grace isn't just all the good things that God does for us or gives to us. For followers of Jesus, we understand that grace is the person of Jesus himself. He doesn't just give us stuff. He gives us himself. So grace isn't a means to manipulate God in order to get a million bucks or to be successful or to be wealthy or be healthy or something like that. Means of grace are ways in which God himself shows up in our lives. So we're not manipulating him religiously to get stuff out of him, but we are getting him. So in Galatians chapter two, this is interesting to me. We started in Acts chapter nine where Saul is confronted by the presence of Christ on the road to Damascus. He's blinded. And then when the scales come off his eyes, he's baptized. And we know that really the rest of the book of Acts is the story of Paul joining Jesus on his mission. Well, in Galatians, now Paul's writing later on to one of these churches that he helps plant. And he says famously, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not ready to make a one-to-one comparison, but I think you would, have to, you would have to be blind to miss the connection. That when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me, we're going, well, Paul, you're still alive. When did you get crucified? (laughs) And I have a feeling part of Paul's answer would be, yeah, back in Acts chapter nine, when I was baptized. That as I participated in the means of grace we call baptism, I was participating in the very death of Jesus. And when I came up out of that water, I was participating in the resurrection of Jesus. Not just symbolically, but in a mysterious, gracious, very real way. And he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That would, Paul would say, that's the beginning. That's when Jesus gave himself to me. That's when I received the very life of Christ so that I no longer just live my own life, but I live with him. That's grace. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's unmerited. It's by faith, but it's pure grace. Anybody watch Band of Brothers? I don't. I'm a Christian, but some of you guys maybe do. There's this crazy scene where one of the kind of lower guys in the military is talking to his officer and he's essentially confessing to his captain that on D-Day, when they showed up on the beach, he completely shut down. And he says, I just like basically fell asleep in a ditch. And when I woke up, I didn't even try to find my unit. I didn't try to fight. I just was lying there. 
I just stayed there. He's totally ashamed, but basically confessing this sin to his commanding officer. And the officer said, why did you hide in the ditch? And the guy goes, because I was scared. And the officer goes, no, we were all scared. But I wrote it down. He says, you hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. He goes, but the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. He goes, all war depends upon it. He goes, the reason you're lying in the ditch, afraid and paralyzed, is because you think you're still alive. But the truth is, you're already dead. And once you realize that, you're going to be freed up, liberated, and empowered to be about the thing that we're here to be about. So, you know how I said there was no category for an unbaptized Christian in the early church? There's really one exception, even though it's rare. If you were a Christian who hadn't been baptized, then the assumption was that your faith was completely phony and fake, unless you were martyred for your faith. That's how seriously they took that. If you've been killed for your faith in Jesus, you were probably legit even if you weren't baptized. The connection has been there from the beginning that in baptism we are crucified with Christ, that we lay down our life, that we no longer live, that we participate in the death of Christ, that we are allowing all of our sins, past, present, and future, the sins that we've done and the sins that have been done against us are laid upon him and buried in the ground and left there as he resurrects from the dead and we are invited to be raised with him. So why do you struggle in your faith? Because you think you're still alive. But true hope is found in realizing you're already dead. For early Christians, to be baptized often meant that you would lose your life physically. That the church was persecuted, hated, and oppressed. And so to be baptized, and if somebody found out about it, likely in many times and places meant you would be imprisoned and even executed. And early Christians still did it. Why? Because they knew they were already dead. Their life was hidden in Christ. And they no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in them. Turn with me in final place to Romans chapter 6. Just want to read now. Hope you're starting to get Paul's thinking on this thing we call baptism. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Again, he's making a big deal about grace. Our salvation, our standing with God, our union with Christ isn't based on our good works, our deserving it, our trying really hard. So if God loves us, saves us, accepts us, then why don't we just go out and live however the hell we want? 
right? Have a good time. He goes, no, that doesn't make sense by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order, in, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Okay? So I hope that you're starting to get this picture. That the way that God graces us with himself, the way he unites us to Christ and gives us new life, new identity, new everything, is, has its beginnings in this act of baptism. It's not earning, it's not deserving. It's simply God saying, here's where this journey starts for you participate in the death and resurrection of Christ as you go down under the water, as you're raised back to life. It's not just a memorial. It's actually you joining yourself to Jesus. Here's what's crazy about baptism. And actually it's different than other religions as well. In Judaism, there's a practice really similar to baptism called tabilah. So if you're somebody who wants to convert to Judaism, you sit in this tub of water and you wash away your impurities. And when you get out, you're a Jew. Is that how we do baptism? You can't baptize yourself. The baptism that Jesus invites us into isn't something you can do for yourself. It's something that's done for you. It takes another person, sometimes two. It's a gift, it's received. So I just want to be as clear as I can that I'm not talking about something that we do for God. Baptism is actually something God does for us. And we participate in a, in a physical way. 
by baptizing one another. That's what we're going to do on June 26th. And so for those of you that, ha- that are followers of Jesus, that are Christians, but you haven't been baptized, repent and be baptized. And for those of you that have never trusted Jesus before, that have never responded to the good news of the gospel, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. God is offering his whole life to you. And for those of you that are Christians that have been baptized, the charge for you is to continue to be baptized, to live baptized, to continue to remind yourself that you no longer live, but that Christ Jesus lives in you. The sacrament or the means of grace we call baptism is something you only have to do once. Nowhere in the Bible do we see a Christian being rebaptized. You do it once, but you spend the rest of your life learning how to live as a baptized follower of Jesus. And so we'll celebrate that together on June 26th. And the final picture that I would leave you with is this the simple illustration that for Christians, baptism is our wedding. And I didn't used to see it that way. I used to talk about baptism as a wedding ring. That Jen and I are married, but I put this ring on to symbolize that, keep all the ladies away, you know? Like, that's what this is about. (laughs) And so, I'm married when I'm wearing it, I'm married when it's off. And that's how I've always thought of baptism. Kind of take it or leave it, it kind of goes together, like a ring and a wife, you should have both. I'm like, I don't think that's how these guys thought of it. I think they saw it not as the wedding ring, but as the wedding. So to go around saying I'm an unbaptized Christian would be to say I'm an unmarried husband. Oh, you're married? Who are you married to? No one, just kind of married in general, right? <laughs> you can't do that. You have to have a wedding. Doesn't need to be a big fancy wedding, doesn't need to be an expensive wedding. Just needs to be some sort of wedding, right? To be married. Right? And ladies, if the guy that you want to marry is like, ah, let's just skip the wedding and, you know, I'm doing really well in my video game and can you just do it without me? You know, like, (laughs) what's he saying? Not that, not just that he doesn't care about weddings, he's saying he doesn't care about you. Right? So take a long walk and never come back. (laughs) Um, That's how seriously the Bible holds this up. Now, it raises some questions like, hey, what about the thief on the cross, right? It's like, hey, if you want to model your life after that guy, go ahead. Um, (laughs) The norm in the scripture is that baptism accompanies the act of faith and repentance. 
not as something we do to earn God's grace, but simply as a way of positioning ourselves to receive the gift of new life. So, we'll probably keep talking about this next week, but that's where we'll stop for now. And uh, the band will come. And my hope is that this morning we would see ourselves as recipients of grace, the grace that is Jesus, through baptism, but also through worship, through prayer, through even something like giving. As we give generously, there's a means of grace there. And uh, we are the recipients of great love. So Father, we thank you so much that you are a gracious God. You truly are. And it's easy for us to lose sight of that. It's easy for us to either um, see ourselves as those entitled to grace or as those who are undeserving or unable to receive you. And your gospel levels all of that stuff out and convicts us of our sin but also gives us the hope of new life. And so we thank you for the gift of baptism. And for me and for my brothers and sisters here who have been baptized into Christ, we thank you that whether we realized it or not, in that moment, that you gave yourself to us in a significant way. And we pray that we would be a people who continue to live with open hands to receive life from you. So we repent of our sin, we repent of our idolatry, we repent of our self-sufficiency and our entitlement. And we say thank you, Lord, for the life that you've given us together. In Jesus' name, amen.